I'd ask you to take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Ruth. Turn to the book of Ruth, please, chapter 2. We'll be continuing our expedition through this short little narrative that is just packed full of theology, uh, packed full of intrigue, uh, packed full of surprises, and uh, we will see some of those today in our text as we'll be looking today at chapter 2, just verses 1 to 13. Title of the message is Ruth Gleans for Grace. She's, going, she's gleaning for grain, but she's also gleaning for grace, and we'll see that unfold. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to begin at chapter 1 and verse 22, the last verse of the previous chapter. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go out Go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be upon the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? since I am a foreigner. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth to come to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we confess that you are an all-knowing God. You are a God who is holy and just and perfect in all of your ways. But yet, Lord, you are merciful and kind to your people. You care for your people. Lord, we pray that you would humble us today under the great truth of your wonderful grace bestowed upon sinners, unworthy sinners. Lord, would you feed our souls this morning? Would you magnify the matchless grace of God and the work of Christ in each of our hearts today? Lord, to the end that we would give you the glory that is due your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of review, the chapter 1, just to summarize where we've been, um, when, what are the days? What's the time period? It's in the days of Judges, right? So these were dark days, dark spiritual days. That's the setting of what's happened. A man, Elimelech, takes his wife and his two sons, goes to the greener pastures of Moab because there's grain there and there's a famine in Bethlehem. Ultimately, he dies along with his sons. His sons, the daughter-in-laws, remarry. I'm sorry, they don't remarry. They become widows. So now you've got three widows in the land of Moab. Finally, in verse 6, 
uh, Naomi hears that the Lord visited his people. It's a covenantal term that the famine is lifted, that now there's grain. And so she hears of this, and she's going to head back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. And what happens is she tries to dissuade her daughter-in-law. Stay here, it's better for you being widows in your own land with your own parents. Ultimately, she convinces Orpah to turn. She went back after her gods. But Ruth stands in stark contrast. Ruth leaves everything and clings to Naomi. Most impressive words you see in verse 16 there. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. She leaves her God. She leaves her people. She embraces Yahweh by faith. She comes, clings to her mother-in-law. And so that's really the setting. They come to Bethlehem. It's revealed where Naomi's heart really is. She's bitter right? They said it's Naomi, which means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which is bitter. And so that takes us up to where we're at today. So their homecoming wasn't necessarily a happy one. Naomi summarizes these 10 years in her own words, I went out full, but I've come back empty, which really wasn't true, by the way. If they were so full, why did they leave to begin with? But again, she's not thinking right. She's become a bitter woman. We developed that last week. So chapter 2 begins. There's this bleak situation. You have two widows in the land of Bethlehem. No provisions, no mail over them to provide for them, to care for them, to give them food, to give them something to survive on. How will they survive? So we're kind of like right at the brink here. Okay, what's going to happen next? The narrator hasn't told us. How will they survive? You have to remember, there wasn't the food stamp program of Bethlehem where you go and get in line and receive food stamps and cash it in for barley. There wasn't a welfare government program there. So we'll see something in our text of poverty and charity and how we ought to be a people to care for the poor. Practical lessons that we can take away. Look at us. We're in the 21st century in America. We're in the midst of an economic downturn really a worldwide economic downturn. Life is hard. Life is difficult for a lot of people. Food stamps, people on food stamps in the United States, 46 million plus, a record all-time high. Unemployment rates, if you go by the new way they calculate, about 10%. But it's really much higher than that because there's people that have been out of work more than two years. They don't qualify for benefits. They've fallen off the radar, but they're unemployed. We live in days in which there's spiraling inflation. We live in troubled days. And we need to have a heart of compassion like Boaz. And we'll see that. It may have been days since Ruth and Naomi had eaten. We don't know. We're not told in the text. I'd like for you to just think for a moment right now, before we even jump into the text, think of the last time you genuinely provided for someone in need. I'm not talking about your child or your parents. I'm talking about when's the last time you provided for someone in need? When's the last time you had an opportunity to meet a need? And then did you meet that need? Well, we will see Boaz as a beautiful type of Christ. He's a type of God the Father in our text, ultimately a type of Christ as he will bring redemption to Ruth, a picture of Christ bringing redemption to us. But we see him showing covenantal love and providing for those in need. There's wonderful dialogue that takes place between them. I don't know if you caught it as we read through it the first time, but it's a beautiful picture, and it's a picture of noble interactions with Ruth the Moabite. So three simple points have divided the text. Very easy to remember. Uh, Keeping with the grace theme, expecting grace. And we're expecting some grace, right? Because it's a bleak situation. Uh, Secondly, experiencing grace, and lastly, expressing grace. And so we'll see that. First of all, expecting grace. The Lord provides for His people again. We're entering into a brand new setting here. Chapter 2 is a new setting. Uh, We're entering in, there's a new character that's going to be introduced to us. Boaz, again, a type of God's fatherly care. We're given the time stamp. When is this? It's at the beginning of barley harvest. Well, when is that? couple people know. It's around mid-March, early April, somewhere in that vicinity, somewhere near the beginning of the Jewish calendar year. But for us, it would be somewhere March-April time frame. 
on our calendars. So we're given the timestamp. We're given a new setting. We've got a new character. And and, in verse 1, it's as though the narrator says, I just can't wait to to reveal this bit of information, and he lets us in on a secret. You could think of verse 1 as being parenthetical, as it were. Let's look at it again. It says, the narrator writes, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We're given a sneak peek. You know, it's when you go to the movies, you get these previews, which practically give away most of the movie these days, I guess, you know, with these previews, right? So you see what happens later. Well, we've got, we've got a sneak peek. We've got a preview at what's coming. We're introduced to a kinsman, a deliverer. He will be the deliverer. We'll see that. He doesn't, the narrator doesn't specifically tell us until verse 20 that he is the one, the true kinsman redeemer. But that's coming later. So he gives us this snapshot. He sort of sets the stage, pointing to the sovereignty of God as these events unfold. Just as the promise of Messiah, we're given a snapshot way back in the book of Genesis. Messiah is coming, right? In the Garden of Eden. We're given all the Old Testament prophecies that He is indeed coming. And and it's predicted throughout the Old Testament and He comes as the bread of life, ultimately to bring about complete redemption to those who are bound in sin. To each one that would repent. In the fullness of time, those events come about. And so again, it's chapter 2 and verse 20, when we're specifically told that may he be blessed, O Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is our closest relative. That is, he is our kinsman, redeemer, the author tells us plainly. What do we know about him? Well, he's relative great wealth. He's a mighty man. It doesn't come forth in the, uh, <clears throat> in the English as well, but it's, the idea is a mighty man. It's the same word that occurs in Judges 6.12, speaking of Gideon, that he's mighty in battle. And so he's mighty. He's of great wealth. We're going to learn a lot more about him. Now, within the law of Moses, there was provisions made for the poor. We read some of those today in Deuteronomy 24, if you were paying attention. The provision, you almost heard it as, becoming redundant, right? For the orphan, for the widow, right? Again and again. And for the alien, the the sojourner. It was sort of a welfare-to-work program that worked quite well. In other words, it's not kicking back in the lazy boy chair, waiting for the mailman to ring the bell, drop off the mail with a welfare check, and so that you can pick up the phone and order some food, and you never leave your lazy boy, right? Those are named that for a reason, by the way. (laughs) but this was a real welfare-to-work program. Again, there were no government handouts. So the harvesters, as they would harvest the field, they would purposely leave the corners, rounding off on the corners, so that there would be some for the poor to come and to gather up the scraps. Enough. Usually it was was enough to survive on. Leviticus 19, this is repeated as well. Now then, you reap the harvest of your land. You shall reap to the very corners. You shall not reap to the very corners of your field, but you shall gather the gleanings of your harvest. Now, this is part of the law of Moses, right? We can't mandate that every farmer in America don't don't completely harvest the field square and just round off those corners and you know leave a sheaf here or there, right? We can't mandate that. But I submit to you that the principle is a good one. Think about it. Okay, what do we have? We don't have a whole lot of farmland here. Uh, At least I haven't seen much. But we have a whole lot of groves. Avocado groves, orange groves, lemon groves. In fact, one-fourth of the country's avocados are grown right here in San Diego County. So there's, there's groves galore. And so when they come through and they pick the fruit, wouldn't it be a good idea to give an address to these poor people applying for welfare? Not every situation, okay? I know that not in every situation but in a lot of these situations, to go here to such and such farm, gather up bushels of leftover oranges and avocados and so forth, I think the principle is a good one. Deuteronomy 24, we read this before, when you reap the harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it, but leave it for the poor. Well, verses 2 and 3, we see the providence of God unfolded. We must remember that this narrative is about real people, and real places, okay? 
When it says the land of Moab, it really means the land of Moab. When it says Bethlehem, which is where they're at, it really means that. And when it says Naomi and Ruth, these are real people, real characters from within the story. So picture the scene. Verse 2. She awakes in the morning. We don't know if this is the first day that she's been back. Maybe they've been back a few days. We don't know. She awakes in the morning, like most of us when we awake in the morning. Takes just a second to remember, okay, where are we at? What do we have to do today? Oh yeah, so she's remembering, I'm a widow. I'm in a strange land. I'm with my mother-in-law and I've, I've vowed to love her and to be by her side. But she's bitter. What am I to do? What should I do? She reminds herself that she's in a strange land. Of course, in God's goodness and in His sovereignty, it's right at the beginning of barley harvest. So there's a buzz around the town. There's a lot of commotion in the town. In fact, the word glean is one of the key words, just like chapter 1, the key word was return 12 times. It's 12 times the word glean is emphasized here. And so there's a lot of harvesting and gleaning going on here. You must remember in this agrarian culture that when harvest time came, many in the town were involved in this. It wasn't like 5% of Bethlehem was involved in the harvest. I mean, there were landowners, harvesters. This was the food for which the city would eat for the coming months and year. And so everybody was involved with this. There's a buzz going on around the town. Reminds me of those times that in New England, when the pilgrims first came over, and before Thanksgiving, they're all involved in the harvesting of the food for the feast, right? It's not something that just a few people do. So in God's providence, all of this is going on around her. And so she says, please let me go. Let me go out to glean. Notice she doesn't say, let us go out to go. Naomi, you should really know this. We're not even sure how she knew to glean. We don't want to speculate there, but she doesn't say, let us go. Now, there's a couple of different thoughts on that. Maybe it's just a respect for those who are older, Naomi being at least in her 50s by now, that I'll go out and do the hard work, I'll bring back the grain. It could be that, or it could be, since it's so close in proximity to the end of chapter 1, where she reveals herself to be a bitter woman, that perhaps she's fallen into depression now, Perhaps she's, she's fallen into that point of where there's inactivity. And so when Ruth requests to go, simply she says, Go, my daughter. Go, my daughter. We too can become like Naomi. It's easy to point the finger and say, Well, you know, she became bitter. She forgot the promises. She, you know, da 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 But what we need to do is turn that finger like this. We too can become bitter. We too can become anxious. We can become discouraged. We can become depressed. It's a very real thing in the Christian life for us to when we begin to doubt God's promises which He provided in abundance. And it provokes us to anxiousness and worry when we're not casting our cares upon the Lord as we'll see in Sunday School today from 1 Peter 5. When we fail to do that, and we want the load of all of our cares on our own back, it's as though we need two canes just to get around or a walker because we don't cast those cares off. And it begins to paralyze us so we can't even move forward in our pilgrimage anymore, ultimately resulting in inactivity and oftentimes depression. Those who are in the deepest depression can't really do much of anything. They've given up hope completely. What is the cure? The cure is to go and to cling to the promises of God, to His covenant commitment to His people, that He said He will only do good to His children. And to remember those truths, to have it ringing in our brains. You see, the key is to look again to the cross afresh. To see the great depths of love that He has gone to to demonstrate His love to His people. And then how could you ever doubt Romans 8.28 again? I mean, He who did not spare us some, but gave Him up for us all. Yes, He's working all things together for good for you and for you, no matter what you're going through. And when you doubt that, you have to look to the cross. To what degree did He go to to ensure our salvation? It's this perspective that clears things up. It's that perspective that begins to show us that yes, I will cast this care upon the Lord and get up and lift myself from the deepest depression 
by the grace of God. Now look again at verse 2. She says, Let me go out into the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. The word favor, you could think of that as grace. And that's why I've titled it, Ruth Gleans for Grace. It's really what she wants. She wants to receive some favor. Favor from somebody that would look upon her and her need and her desperate need before Yahweh who she has just embraced. It's the same word that occurs in Genesis 6-8 in that text. We don't have time to turn there where it says, and Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that's the favor that she wants. That's what she wants. Now, brethren, gleaning was hard work. Lest you think it was though you go out and, oh, look, here's a baked loaf of bread. Oh, that's so good. No, it it meant gathering grain, putting it into some kind of container, carrying it on your back. Who knows how far to walk out to the field and then to get back home. You might liken it today to those who, I see them sometimes early in the morning. They're out, they're looking in trash cans or construction sites for empty water bottles, empty aluminum cans. They do a lot of walking. One of the parks where I work out at, um, there's a guy we've built a relationship over the, the couple, last couple years, but he does this. He's got a shopping cart, and sometimes it's full. I mean, he's been working. He's working, but he's gathering all that just so that that can be recycled to enjoy a good meal for that day. Do you see the, the, the significance? Do you see the parallel? It was hard work. And look at verse 3. This is beautiful. She departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Notice this. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family Elimelech. This word, she happened, is an amazing word. It would be kind of like the way we would say, and coincidence of coincidences, she actually picked the field of Boaz. And the writer is wanting us to think about this, the word means to encounter, to, to meet without prior arrangement. Proverbs 16, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So you see how beautiful this is. The Lord's working behind this in a beautiful way. Ruth did not purpose to go to any particular field. She went to a field. Literally, to translate this woodenly in the Hebrew, it is, and her chance chanced upon the allotted field. (laughs) Isn't that strange? It's a picture, brethren, of the providence of God. That there's somebody behind the scenes weaving these events. And so too in our lives. He weaves these events in our lives. He declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10 says, From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. Our own confession in the London Baptist, 1689, the fifth chapter is a beautiful chapter on the providence of God. Paragraph 2, just part of paragraph 2, says this, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause of all things that come to pass, immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything that befalls any by chance or without his providence. In other words, There's no such thing as a coincidence. That's essentially what that is saying. To say that something's happened in your life, but God's hand was not in it, is wrong. Now, there's secondary causes. He's the first cause. There's secondary causes. We see that beautifully in Acts 2.23, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Listen to the verse. This man delivered over, this is Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus being handed over by God's plan, okay? You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It was God's plan that he would be crucified for sinners. God used and allowed the secondary causes of sinful men to put those things into practice. So the writer wants us to see something very important with using this she happened stuff. She chants, 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 chants. And that is, that a sovereign God is coordinating all the events that we're seeing in this short book. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Well, moving on, poverty like wealth ultimately comes from God 
and serves his sovereign purpose. Some are guilty of misjudging the poor when we see a poor person, homeless person. Sometimes we're guilty of misjudging. We cast judgment, right? Why don't they have a job? Where's their house at? We begin to just manufacture sometimes in our brain all the circumstances that could have brought that person to that place. There are poor among us. In fact, in Deuteronomy 15, it's interesting comparison of verses, but in verse 4, it says, There shall be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you, if only you listen to observe the voice of the Lord your God and observe carefully all the commandments. A few verses later, verse 11, The poor will never cease to be in your land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to the needy, and the poor in the land. Remember, well, there's been a couple presidents that um, did this, but Lyndon Johnson in 1964 declared war on poverty. (laughs) He lost that war. (laughs) They're still poor among us. In the New Testament, the woman pours the perfume on the head of Jesus before he goes to be crucified, and they begin to ridicule her. But Jesus says, "You always, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So the testimony of both the Old and the New Testament is that we will always have the poor among us. Now what are the causes of poverty? Well, there's many, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but one of the primary causes is sloth. It's sloth. It's laziness. It's not being willing to go out and to break a sweat and to work to provide for yourself. It's a mentality of wanting others to give to you. Sadly, in our country, we've manufactured a lot of this. The right for a handout. All you have to do is just be born here. That's it. You've got handouts galore. You don't have to do anything. And you live better with the handouts than most of the world. Laziness. Proverbs 10. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in the summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps and harvests is the son who acts shamefully. Brethren, Ruth did not sleep through the harvest. She knew the harvest was happening, and she wanted a piece of it so that she could provide for her and her mother-in-law. All poverty does not come from sloth. Sometimes it can come about from sin. I was talking to somebody yesterday that told me about somebody in the military in the last couple of years that's being kicked out of the military now that has spent $60,000 on illegal drug use. Okay? That just blows my mind. <laughs> um, such a drug addiction that he had, that he spent that much money, and of course now he's finally been found out and he's being kicked out. There's other causes. Injury, illness. You hurt yourself. You break your back. You, you know, break a leg. It's kind of hard to do a manual labor job if your leg's broken, right? Or you have a knee issue, um, <laughs> depending on what the situation is. Serious disease can set in. Cataclysmic events. Wildfires, by the way. Wildfire season's coming here in Southern California. But wildfires, you lose everything that you own. Now, you know what? We have insurance and so forth, but still, these things can bring about severe loss, floods, famine. How about the death of a, the head of the home? Father. Suddenly you've got a wife and children, a widow and orphans. But we must understand ultimately that all those things I've just talked about are secondary causes. Ultimately, a sovereign God is working behind each and, one, each and every one of these. Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 is beautiful. She begins, my soul, my soul exalts in the Lord. In verse 7 she says, The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. So, expecting grace. After the end of chapter 1, we're at a place where we're we're expecting grace because the situation's so bleak. And now, experiencing grace. Verses 4-17. to 17, Boaz shows compassion and favor to Ruth. By the way, Boaz, from beginning to end, his speech is seasoned with grace. Colossians 4. Seasoned properly with grace. From beginning to end. 
And, and it begins, look at the first word, now behold. Now that word's kind of a loaded word there. It shifts our attention not only from Ruth and now to Boaz, but it's doing something else. She's just gone out into the field to glean. Behold, it's almost like, and guess who comes on the scene? Just a coincidence again, right? Guess who comes on the scene? It's Boaz. It, and it's, it, it, it conjures up the idea of wonder about not only him coming out to the field from Bethlehem, but the timing of his arrival. And the first words out of someone's mouth, isn't it true that it reveals a lot about the character of someone? When you meet somebody, sometimes the first words, sometimes, you know, some of us put our foot in our mouth or whatever, the first words will reveal something about that person's character. Look in verse 4. And behold, Boaz came to Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. Look what their reply was. I wonder what kind of work environment this was. Were they talking about oh, that Boaz, all that? No, this was a good, healthy work environment because look at their response. And may the Lord bless you. I hope you can say that to your bosses, <laughs> to those who are over you, to have that kind of a good relationship there. And may the Lord bless you. And so the first dialogue here is with the servant. Boaz said to the servant who was in charge with the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now notice, he didn't say, who is this? She's obviously out of place. She's a foreigner. She's a stranger. She didn't say, he, didn't, he didn't say, who is this? He said, whose is this? Who does she belong to? Is she engaged to some landowner? Is there some reason why she's here? What's the reason? Who is she? Uh, obviously, the writer wants us to see that she's out of place. Look at what the servant says. She is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And she came and has remained from morning until now. I wanted you to emphasize, look at that word, remained. Do you remember? Chapter 1 was going, departing, returning, over and over and over, the repetition and contrast here. Now it's as though she knows this is where she's to be and she remains. Okay? Don't overlook that. So she's remained from morning until now. And by the way, this little phrase at the end of verse 7, and she has been sitting in the house for a little while, is the most difficult phrase in the whole book. And um, other commentators agree with that. But it's, it's basically... That's probably not an accurate translation. Um, it, the idea is that she's not sitting around in the house not wanting to work. The idea is she might be taking a break. The idea is that from morning until now, she has been working hard and did not turn back and has not stopped except for a short rest. That's, that's I think, the idea in the original. So, we see that she's worked hard. Here she is. Now, the second dialogue. It's between Boaz and Ruth. You see Boaz speak, then Ruth, Boaz, then Ruth, and then Boaz ends it. So first of all, in verses 8 and 9, notice what he says. Listen carefully. When you read listen carefully, we saw that in our family worship last night, one of the Gospels, listen carefully. My daughter, it's important, we want to hear this. And this is where he says these four things. Okay, first of all, the my daughter thing kind of echoes how Naomi has been replying to or treating uh, Ruth as well. But the four things he says in these two verses are very important. Don't go to another field. Okay? In fact, don't leave this field. So he doesn't want her to leave his fields. Don't go to another field to glean. Secondly, it says stay with the female servants. Okay? That translation's a little weak. The idea is, remember when it says that Ruth clung to her mother-in-law in chapter, verse 14 of chapter 1? That's the same word that's being used. Stay so close to the female servants is essentially what he's saying. Stay here with my maids. Stay very close. And then the third thing, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. The idea of this is to focus on the work to glean, focus on the work. And what would happen for a young, vulnerable woman in these fields? There, it could be dangerous with the male servants and everything and out in the middle of nowhere and so forth. 
And naturally, if you were a, a young woman, like walking downtown, you're looking around you and you're suspecting any male that's around you, are they up to no good? Well, he says, he's commanded the male servants not to touch her. What you have here is the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace, um, very clearly. And the fourth, drink freely of the water provided for the hired servants. So not just drinking the peasant water, the gleaners didn't have rights to the water, so he is doing that. So we learn a lot about Boaz here. Um, We haven't even gone past uh, verse 10 here, but it's as though the author is building him up and that we, we can't help but to come away with there's a hero in our midst here he's a mighty man of valor verse one he's godly verse four he provides verse eight and nine he protects as we just read verse nine we'll see that he bestows favor he praises he shows covenant love and he speaks kindly to her need so expecting god's grace experiencing ruth is experiencing god's grace and now expressing god's grace our final point What does it mean to express? Well, the dictionary says to convey thoughts or feelings in words by gestures or conduct. And so we're going to see grace expressed. Look at verse 10. Ruth is utterly humbled at God's goodness and kindness that she's received. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me a foreigner. So notice what she does first. She falls down. Just like this fell down. She falls on her face. And so that's an action to demonstrate um, expressing grace and gratitude. She had left the land of Moab. She's embraced, embraced Yahweh, but she had no idea that Yahweh's blessings would flow to her in such abundance in such a short amount of time. She's utterly humbled. She physically demonstrates this by, by falling down. It's like one of the, the one ten, of the ten lepers that came back to give thanks fell on his face in gratitude. The word in the original is actually to worship, to bow down, to pay homage. And it can be done to, to deity, but also to royalty. But she follows her gesture by a verbal expression, the first words that she says, Why have I found grace in your sight? And why should you take notice of me, a foreigner? She's utterly astonished. She is amazed. And then look in verse 11, Boaz replied to her, All that you have done, for your mother-in-law, after the death of your husband, has been fully reported to me how you left father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to the people that you did not previously know. What's Boaz's answer? Why all this favor to a foreigner? Well, he has heard the whole story. Do you remember at the end of chapter 1 here where the women of the city all said, is this Naomi? Whoa, it is Naomi, and so forth that there's a buzz amongst the town, and it says the whole town was stirred. So word gets around in a small village, in a small town. So he had already heard about this. But what was it that drew Boaz to Ruth? Yes, he's heard about all that she has done. It's her covenant faithfulness. It's her commitment to Naomi. That's what drew him to her. And, And there's an application here for you singles and for you young people. What are you looking for in a prospective spouse? Is it looks? Is it being witty? What kind of things do you look for in a spouse? Someone that's popular because you're not popular? Or are you looking for godliness and faithfulness? One that has commitment to Yahweh, to our God. And it's interesting too, why do men show kindness to women in our day? It's often, oh, she's so attractive, she's a babe, or something like that, you know, this kind of stuff. And, and, or what a pleasant personality, and, and so forth. And, and that's what can entice men and draw them after the opposite sex. Do well to remember what the proverb says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Brethren, we see a woman who fears the Lord being praised by Boaz right here before us. 
I think there's another picture here. Well, actually, I picked on the singles now, young ladies. What are you looking for in Prince Charming? Of course, my daughter's in the nursery. She'll have to listen to this part. She'll be embarrassed when she listens to the MP3 and sees that I mentioned her. But as you're looking forward to growing up, to marrying, as you're here, single, what do you look for in a man? I tell you, look for somebody like Boaz that demonstrates godliness, that demonstrates all of those things, that provides and protects those are the very things that you want. But I think there's a second thing in verse 11 that is pictured here before us. And even though it's Boaz speaking, but he's giving testimony from what he has heard, you can't overlook the fact that this is a picture of discipleship and following the Lord. Look again at the text. It says how what you've done for your mother-in-law after the death, and then how you left father, you left mother, you left the land of your birth to come to a people you did not previously know. Does that not echo Luke 14? Jesus says, So then, none of you can be, not, be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. She didn't have many possessions, but those things she did have, she gave up. Likewise, in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a picture of discipleship. And it's not that you hate mother and father. I don't think she went away hating her land and all of that, but the idea is that God is more important, and in this context, following Christ in the Luke context. Boaz is a portrait of the Lord's care for us. He is mighty. He's wealthy. You think of Isaiah 6, the prophecy, mighty God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills themselves. He's generous. And again, the Lord is so kind to us and bestows blessing upon blessing to us, though all of them are undeserved. God protects us, just like Boaz protects Ruth. The Lord is compassionate as well. He's compassionate and long-suffering towards us, even in the midst of our sin. Exodus 34, when Moses wants the Lord to reveal himself, uh, the Lord does. The Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Even the Lord Jesus pictured as one with such compassion. We're reading through the Gospel of Mark and our family worship, and again and again, he has compassion on others. In verse 12, let's look at verse 12. He says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. We see God is working through Boaz. Notice he says, May the Lord reward your work. So only the Lord can repay. But he calls on Yahweh to intervene. But as often is the case, God uses means. And God's using Boaz in this situation. And this beautiful picture, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That's a beautiful picture that's repeated, isn't it? Throughout the Old Testament, uh, where God is often pictured as a mother bird extending her wings out for the protection of the helpless chicks. Psalm 91 is one of those places. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So we see Boaz again demonstrating covenantal love. The Hebrew word is kesed. It's, it, it's the word that's repeated throughout this book. It's an unconditional love that's God-centered. And it's, it's an unconditional lifelong commitment for the good of the other person. It's what speaks of God's love towards us. His unfailing love. His loving kindness. There's so many English words that could be used to translate this one word. Verse 13, it says, Ruth replies, but she said, then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant though I am not like one of your maidservants. Again, she just replies back. A better translation with this, may I continue to find favor um, in your eyes. It's really such a picture of Christ and His church that the grace of God is unfailing. The grace of God continues. And we as the recipients of God's grace cry out, may we continue to receive Your grace, O Lord. 
Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. So, God had been kind to these women. God had been kind to these widows. We haven't even seen, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. This will be next time when then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. That was enough barley to feed two people for a couple of weeks. That's the blessing that she bestowed. But for us, as we go through difficult times, our life can be filled with trials and difficulties and the things that cause us to ask why and we never get an answer. Unexpected providences in our life that can be difficult to navigate through. Often these providences to us just seem like like unconnected yarn and and just pieces like an ash heap of, of, of different colored yarns. And we know it's work, God is working something, but we don't see it all together just yet. But later when we get the right perspective, when we remember who He is and what He is doing in us, we're seeing, we realize we're seeing only the back of the tapestry. That as we see the front side, it is something altogether beautiful that we never would have saw completely and never will see completely in this life. God has woven all the difficult things in our life with all the blessings and all of that, and it's all worked together into a masterpiece of which we will see in glory someday. Well, very quick as we end, two points of application. Do we show compassion to the poor and needy? Boaz is an example for us. Yeah, you have, there's, it's a whole other sermon, <laughs> maybe this will be an upcoming Sunday school lesson, of how to use tact and how to properly be able to minister to the poor You don't want to be an enabler, but at the same time to provide some means for them to work for themselves. But also, just at a a level before that, are we a respecter of persons? James says, as you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in the good place, but then you say to the poor, you stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Do you look around you with contempt to those around you? those less fortunate than you. In our own neighborhood, in our own community, of which we just held five days of vacation Bible school, we've been out through the neighborhood meeting people, giving them invitations to church and so forth. Do we judge them as we interact with them? Many opportunities, the rescue mission, the going down there, the door-to-door evangelism, evangelism in the marketplace. Are we judging people as we walk up to them? As somebody comes in, do we judge them? We need to be careful to have the right mindset. And we need a heart of compassion like Boaz to first take the time to invest in the situation. Okay? Boaz took time to begin a relationship with Ruth, but then also he provided out of his own resources. And so we need to have that heart. Secondly, God's grace is on display through the book of Ruth in a beautiful way. And I hope you do not tire of hearing of God's grace. Ruth wanted favor. And she knew that in order to get favor from someone that she actually had to get out of bed when she woke up that morning. Remember when she woke up and she said, I would like to go out and glean. Right? If she never got out of bed, would she have received the favor of Boaz? No. And so... The point is simply this. We must get out of bed. We must get out of the house. We must go into the fields as as Ruth did. And many Christians want grace, but they don't use the means provided to them to receive that grace. And what I'm speaking of is our perception of that. The Lord has revealed Himself in His Word. The Lord is revealed through the proclamation of the Word. And yet it's so easy to just leave that to gather dust, to skip church, skip Bible study, and all And we wonder why we're discouraged and depressed when God has provided the means. And then when we understand the grace of God to be able to express that through private prayer and public worship. These are the means, some of the means that the Lord uses to encourage us to worship Him. He alone is worthy. 
But then we must act in faith. We step out in faith, trusting God that He will provide. We, it's not enough to sit around and wait for provision to fall out of the ceiling from, into your lap, but to put feet to faith. And then do you struggle with a bitter heart? You know, the remedy for hard and bitter hearts in the midst of distress is simply to meditate on the awesome grace of God. To consider to what great lengths He has come to you. All of the most difficult trials and providences, the things that cause you to fall to your knees and cry out, why? All of those things you understand are being delivered to you by the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ Himself. Uniquely selected for your exact situation that you are going through. And it is He that is our great High Priest. It is He that has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It is He that says that I understand what it's like. I've been tempted in all things as you were, and yet without sin. He is committed to you to be with you in the refuge of the storm. In the midst of the storm, to be a refuge for you. And if you're here today and you don't know anything of the grace of God, I'll submit to you, you know something of the grace of God because you've just heard about it today. But also you experience God's blessing of the warm sunshine as you walk out of this place, of going to fill your belly with food. You know something of God's common grace. But the wrath of God abides on you if you have not repented of your sin and embraced Jesus Christ by faith as the only way of salvation. You need to see God's great love for sinners. Again, He's demonstrated His love by sending Christ to the cross. Humble yourself and cry out for mercy. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the book of Ruth. We thank You for the riches contained here. Lord, we pray that You would help us to revel in Your matchless grace. Lord, that You would help us to resemble Boaz in showing covenant commitment and faithfulness to you first and foremost, and to those of which we have made commitments to, and to Lord, to be a generous people. Lord, we thank you for this time. Have your way in our lives. Give grace to those who are going through difficult times right now. Lord, we pray that you would help us all to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.